Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is John Timar, CEO of Killcliffe. Killcliffe is America's best-selling clean energy drink and the official drink of the Atlanta Braves. This was such a blast. John has such an engaging personality and is extremely charismatic, so I really hope you'll enjoy this one. We discuss how the Navy SEALs impacted John and led to the founding of Killcliffe, some of the creative marketing initiatives Killcliffe has done within the past few years, including a partnership with Joe Rogan, why at one point they considered a rebrand and how they doubled down on their core audience and released new SKUs. This is a jam-packed episode. Without further ado, here's John. John, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I am absolutely thrilled to be here, man. I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing awesome. Doing awesome. Thanks again for 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 taking the time. Wanted to start originally. I know you're a Navy SEAL. What was the inspiration or why did you want to become a Navy SEAL? Since that's obviously super impressive. Not many people are are Navy SEALs. And why did you want to be in that? in that group and have that be part of your life? Man, that is a, that's a great question. And there's a lot, man, there's a lot to talk about there. To be just brutally honest with you, I, I was intrigued by, you know, the, the military as a child. And I, I, I watched a bunch of James Bond movies with my dad. And I read the Richard Marcinko Rogue Warrior books when I was in high school. And then I went to college and I didn't really have like, uh, I didn't really have a passion for anything in particular. And I dropped out and played guitar in a heavy metal band. And I quickly realized that while my chops were good, they weren't great. And it was going to be a long road that I was not willing to walk to, to figure out where that was going to take me in life. So I, um, I just went back and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to do that Navy thing that I read about when I was in high school that I thought was super cool. And there was a driving force behind it that I just I, – I felt like I had a lot of pr- to prove to myself. And that was an excellent opportunity to – to, to enter a really, really challenging proving grounds and towards a, you know, a, a career path that I, I was interested in to try, you know, it was a super cool job. I loved it. And, um, and I, it, I knew it was really, really hard to do. And I was intrigued by the challenge. I needed that in my life. You know, I was kind of aware enough to know that I needed a kick in the butt. And so that's what I did. That was that's really what it was. I wanted a challenge. I, I needed it. I felt like I had a lot to prove. And my guitar chops weren't good enough to get me on the big stage. Well, my guitar chops were also not good enough to get on the big stage. I was actually also in a heavy metal band back in college. We definitely share that similarity there. So what were some of the hardest moments about becoming a SEAL and also being a SEAL? Becoming a SEAL, it's it's a war of attrition, right? It's You have, you, you, you have a, a group of people that are already selected from a much larger group. People that are great athletes. Some people look like they just were like a Greek statue, you know. People totally ripped. Uh, it was it was a lot of, of really really talented, strong, hard athletes that show up to this thing together. But the thing about it is, becoming a seal is not so much about how fast you can run, how fast you can swim, how strong you are. It's more about your ability to drive through adversity and continue on task and stay focused and win. It's, it's more about being able to have 
the mental toughness and resilience to to withstand you know really really brutal things like being cold but being cold often it's not just being cold like a the 10 minute chill baths that everyone does nowadays the ice tubs it's not that it's like you're living an ice tub it's not just an ice tub for 10 minutes it's like an ice tub for 10 hours they they bring you to the edge of hypothermia and they bring you back and they bring you they put you back in and they bring you back and they keep doing it and doing it and doing it and it breaks you down mentally and it's hard you get to a point where it's just very difficult to continue on and it takes a lot of resilience and that's they're looking for people that can they can be resilient under really really um, stressful conditions under lots of duress but in that resiliency and in that duress that they can have the clarity of mind to perform tasks and to pay attention to small things that really matter while they're performing those tasks with precision. So that's actually a really hard thing. And what I found in my experience, and everybody has a different experience, in my experience along the way, that some of the people that were the biggest, strongest, fastest, smartest were early quitters in the program. Um, and, and maybe that's because they were just, they just had a physical or mental advantage when they were younger in high school or whatever, and maybe they hadn't tested themselves in this capacity. I was always mediocre. So for me, I was, I was always a kick in the butt to keep up, whether it was school or whether it was athletics. So I was used to getting beat down. And, um, and so the hardest part of SEAL training was really, it was really persevering through those hard conditions and also seeing your friends quit. You know, that's the hard part. And anybody could be a SEAL if they, if they put their mind to it. I know it sounds stupid and cliche, but it's the truth because the people who, who graduate, are not the people that you would expect when you look at the sample that comes in. So when I when I was checking in, so we my class, we finished, we had about 130 people class up. There was about 500 people or so that had competed to get those 130 slots. So there's already a pretty big down selection. And from those, those 130, only eight of us made it through, straight through. Now there was about, there's probably six or seven guys that got injured, they had a lot of potential, they rolled and they graduated with other classes down the road. So there's probably more like 20 of the 130 that graduated, but they went straight through, there was only eight of us. And um, the funny thing about it is when I checked into the SEAL compound, it, it was kind of like, I don't know what it was like for you when I checked, when you checked into college, but when I checked into college, very different from when I dropped out from college, but when I checked in, I showed up and at like an admin office and they told me all the different places I had to go, medical, the dorm, and I had to walk, the, the chow hall, whatever, I had to walk around and, and get everything set up. Well, that's what it was like when you checked into the SEAL train back back then. You would show up and they would say, all right, go check in with the admin so you can get paid and check in with your, with the, you have to go through all these health screenings, go do those, you know, go get your barracks room. So it's just whoever you randomly show up with becomes your group to go do that. And there was, there was four of us that showed up. There was three Johns and a Chris. One of the Johns was a scrawny little dude, um, small, older. I mean, I was, I was 20. This guy was 28. I thought he was like a geriatric at that age. I was like, man, he's not going to make it through. He's old. He's on age waivers. And uh, I'm going to make sure he sees this too. Uh, so he was a John and uh, he knows who he is. There's another John who's about my size and Chris was about my size. And John, the John, other John my size was a, a sprinter in college. He wasn't very good distance runner, but he was really fast sprinter and great athlete. And the, the other, the other guy, Chris was just all around great athlete, um, big guy, uh, pretty fast. Yeah. And so the four of us checked in together and I was talking trash. Cause that's like the first thing I do is talk trash. 
Um, so I was talking trash to, uh, to John or to John about John. I was like, Hey John, that John, that scrawny dude, there's no way. I'm not going to tell you what I said because it's, you know, you'd have to beep it out. I was like, that guy is skinny. He's old. He is not making it through. He's going to hype out. You can curse on this podcast, by the way. It's all good. It's yeah, all good. yeah. Well, sorry. Thanks. I appreciate that. So fast forward, that scrawny dude, John, was the honor man of my class. So, you know, they picked the guy who did the best on all the all the physical fitness tests and exams. So he was an honor man, which I couldn't believe. But he was. He was, he was a great dude. He was this witty guy from Boston. I love that guy. So when we graduated, the four of us were four of the eight, which is statistically almost impossible, right? So as I as we finished the ceremony, I'm walking away, and my dad was there, and I was going to see him. And John, uh, he, the small scrawny John, walked up to him. He's like, hey, I wanted to let you know that on the day we checked in, I was telling Chris that you were a fat mofro, and there's no way you're making it through training. So we were saying the same thing about each other. So we're bromates. Um, so... Um, Anyway, so long story short, you can't really pick the people. It's it's the people that can they can deal with adversity, they can deal with loss, they can still maintain a focus on the mission even in hard times, and and most of all, the people who can really handle the cold because that's what sets the seals apart from any other special operations group is we do a lot of training in the water, and the difference between running a long distance on on land and swimming a long distance in water is on land, you can just stop running. In water, if you stop swimming, you're going to drown. So you're already, you already have like your security blankets taken away. And then on top of that, with the longer exposure, your body temperature drops and you start to get hypothermic. When you get hypothermic, actually, when you're getting into the stage of hypothermic, your body starts to spasm a little bit. You start to feel like these really warm sensations in your muscles as they're spasming because they're trying to heat themselves up. And then after that, you kind of start going numb. I've been in all those phases. And that's where you really just start to separate the, separate out the people who really, really want it and they're willing to take the punishment and find a way through it versus the people that just thought it'd be cool to have on their resume or it'd be cool for an Instagram photo. You know, so it separates people out for sure. I love that. Also quite good training in just, as you say, the people that show up at the same time that you happen to show up Hey, that's your crew. That's who you're going to be, you know, working with and, you know, that's your team. And so there's it's almost this random way where it's not, you know, hey, let me like pick and choose for example, uh like you would do maybe in like, you know, normal life per se, right? Right. Yeah, there's no there's no picking and choosing. You're just you're just trying to survive. So you're 100% right, man. That was the hardest part of being like becoming a SEAL. And the thing about the SEAL teams and I can only speak to that because that's my experience, but they're very, very focused on your ability to operate with precision under duress, right? So the, the main reason when you get more advanced that people don't make it through, once you get through all the hard, like, you know, early on, you have a lot of the, the gut checks, the things that where you're, you're, you know, hell week and you're going without tons of sleep and you're, you're, all, you're always exposed to elements throughout, the, you know, your whole time in the SEAL teams, that's just a given. So you get pretty tough. But the thing about it is, it's it's the thing that really starts to get people when they they're near the finish line they don't make it is their safety violations or their inability to actually to do the task in the extreme duress and that's where you get that final level of separation from the pack. I even had when I when I went through we would go we finished SEAL training and you would go to a team and at the team you would go into a probationary period and then upon successful completion of that probationary period you go in front of an oral board which was all these old school frogmen that spent 20 years being SEALs and they would ask you questions and you'd be putting like breaking down and putting together guns, popping people with IVs, 
doing equations for, you know, for dives or jumps on, on the whiteboard while you're being pep like the whole time you're just getting and it's like a two or three hour dissertation um, of everything you've learned. And that's, and then they, there's a vote on pass fail. That's how it, it was. It's changed a bit since for the purposes of efficiency. But I, even that there was like two or three guys that got all the way to that point and they didn't get their trident. They didn't pass the test. They didn't have the, they didn't have the wherewithal to, to handle that academic element in, in that session and do it successfully to make that next step. So there's a lot of places along the line, along the way where people wash out. Wow. I can only imagine how that funnel is, right? With just the number of people that want to be SEALs and then kind of pass through um, pass through all that test. As you say, you're you know, four of the eight people that actually passed that during that cohort. What was the transition like from being a SEAL to civilian life? It was very difficult. It was very difficult. I found that, you know, there were a lot of different dynamics there. One, you know, trading on the, the SEAL background at that time was not as easy. Um, we weren't as well known. People wouldn't, you know, you say you're a SEAL, they don't believe you. It's very weird. There's a lot of fakes out there. A lot of people with uh, stolen valor is a real thing. And there's a lot of people that pretend that they did something that they didn't do. And so there's that little bit of like validity you have to get over. But uh, there was also a lot of, there was a lot of struggle in like it, it, finding your footing after something intense like that, like an elite military unit. Or if you, I imagine if you're a, a professional athlete, um, that might be a little different because you're loaded. So with the differences between SEAL teams, you're not loaded. But it's really hard because your identity is so wrapped up in in this this passionate job that, you know, that's the, one of the hardest things about being a SEAL is, is not being a SEAL. Like you have to be passionate to get there. And it's such an all-encompassing endeavor that it, it's your whole life. It's your friends. You're always traveling. Um, your family has to kind of morph around the idea that you're a SEAL instead of the other way around. And so it's, it's very, it's very difficult. So when you leave that, your identity kind of goes away. It's such a, it requires such a level of commitment. It's hard not to have that as like your primary identity. And so, so that's, so there's the, the struggle of, you know, you, you go from being in the top percent of the U S military and the hardest, one of the, you know, arguably most challenging special operations units in the world to here I am, can I get a job? And that's really tough. And then getting the, you know, the respect that you think you deserve from circles outside of, outside of your community. And then you're walking away from all these things, the support network, the people, the, you know, the skills, all these things that you've been honing and in, in your life that surround with this revolves around is just gone. I mean, you're not jumping out of airplanes anymore. It's actually really expensive to do if you're not doing it for a job. You're not diving every day. That's, you know, that's a vacation when you're in the real world, you know? So it's like, you're not, you can't shoot guns every day because ammo is expensive. I used to get it for free. You know, it's like all the things that you do, like you don't have, you're not going overseas with a group of guys that just want to, they're just pipe hitters that are doing their job. Like that doesn't exist anymore. You know, you don't have the, you don't have the luxury of the, you don't have the, the stability of the military system with health, with, you know, income, with housing, with all these resources that are available for you, that's all gone. People take that for granted. They don't really realize until they, they leave what all they did have. And uh, and then they don't have the community because the community operates in a certain way where once you're out, you're out. I mean, the, the veteran community is very, very strong, but when you're not operational and your friends are operational, your friends are operational and you're not. Like it literally there's a divide because they're in their world doing their thing and, and you're not. So, um, so it's, I mean, so it weighs on you 
emotionally, uh, financially, community-wise. Like it just, it's definitely a, it's more of a, it's more of a sea change than than you would expect. Yeah, I can only imagine um, how drastic of a shift and a change that is. And also as well, you know, employers and when you're, you know, looking for a job, not quite maybe understanding what the SEALs is and how special it truly is and how tough it is to be a SEAL. In recent years, there are a lot of programs that popped up, which has been good to see. And a lot of older guys like me, not that old, but, you know, relatively speaking, have gone in, supported and devoted time to those programs to help with transition. There's something called the Honor Foundation that's supported by the Navy SEAL Foundation. And it's literally a pipeline to take high performers in the military from the special operations community and help them find opportunities and companies that are willing to take a to take a flyer on a high performer from the military, bring them into their system, teach them, teach them business and let them go do their thing. And that's a really cool program that just didn't exist. You know, there's something called Merging Vets and Players. That's something that was started by, I think, Jay Glazer. And it's the, the idea there is that athletes and military have this commonality and that their identity is wrapped up in their uniform. They take it off. And this really, this really helps the people that are really struggling to find community when they get out of these organizations. And we've supported the local chapter in Atlanta quite a bunch because, you know, these people are our people and we, we let them use our, our facility once a week. Uh, for their sessions, they bring this big group in. They do mixed martial arts. Half of our office space is actually a fitness area, and so, like you know, so those there's things that popped up that have really, in recent years, been you know really developed to help solve the problems that you know a lot of veterans were facing 10, 15 years ago. That's awesome. That's awesome with with all the programs that you're running. So, how did you meet? Todd Ehrlich. I know he's not one of the Johns or the Chris um, that was part of the four. I know obviously he's a SEAL. And how did he find Kill Cliff? All right. So so Todd Ehrlich, for the people that don't know, is the founder of Kill Cliff. He's he's a um, a very interesting guy. He's uh, he's a ginger and he's he's about five foot tall, maybe five four. And uh, Todd and I served at SEAL Team Eight together. We had established. So Todd was a couple of years ahead of me. And, you know, getting into the SEAL teams, he was, he's a little bit older than me. You know, I think he's, maybe he's getting close to 50 now. So Todd got there before me. And what happened is the guys that he was really tight with, when they did their second platoon, I w- they were with me. So I was a new guy and I was in platoon with all to- Todd's peer group. And so Todd and I, even though we were on different schedules, because one of the things when you're in the SEAL team is you have all these platoons are on different schedules. So you, you have friends, but you never see them, um, except for the guys you're in a platoon with. So I became friends with all the guys that were in Todd's peer group. And so Todd and I naturally met over time and became friends. And so that's, and then that's, that's really how me and Todd met. We've known each other since I think 98, maybe. I remember when he started Kill Cliff. So I had been in the startup world as well. And I was on the tech, I was in the tech business. So I was doing software, yes, ass, pass, that type of stuff. And Todd was, he just started Killcliff, and I and I just relocated back to Atlanta, which was my hometown. I'd been in Washington D.C. for a few years, and Todd had just started Killcliff, and he's like, "Hey, dude, I need someone to come help me run this thing. You want to do it?" And I'm like, "Man, these I just put so much effort into this other business. I got to see it through. Like, I just didn't feel like I could desert the people that I've been working with and building this other business." And Todd was just getting a drink company off the ground, so I was like, "Look, we're at different stages of starting." but I'm a little further along the starting phase right now. So I'm going to keep doing this thing. And, but we just, you know, we just kept the conversation alive and then I got involved in Kill Cliff in 2018. So it was literally like, it was like seven years later, I get involved in Kill Cliff. <laughs> 
I was about to say, so because it was started in 2011, is that right? I had been working on it for a few years before it officially incorporated, but um, yeah, 2011 was the first time. What was the main insight behind Kill Cliff and like the opportunity that initially that it be Todd found and as well as what attracted you even to obviously work at, at Kill Cliff? So for Todd, and I'm going to speak for him. You know, if you ever want to talk to him, I can set that up. But Todd, uh, he was very interested. He's always had a startup mindset. You know, he's worked in out of private equity and he's, he's always been very entrepreneurial. And he was intrigued by the idea of creating a beverage that a Navy SEAL would drink. At the, literally at the base level, that was it. It was like, well, if you look at the market, you got to go back to when you were playing, you know, in your metal band, go back to that era. Like think about where we are today versus then in terms of you, if you want to use the phrase functional beverage, right? That's a popular phrase. It's the catch all for everything that doesn't fall in a category. So call it that, but think about it. Like if you were going to go get a bite to eat, your choice is like coffee, iced tea, Coke. Like that's your choice. If you, you know, if you're looking for a pick me up in the middle of the day, your choice is a Red Bull or Monster. Um, like the choices really weren't there. If you wanted, I mean, there was a whole vitamin water thing happening. That was interesting putting functional ingredients into a, a, a water with some flavor, uh, lightly flavored water. That was an interesting idea at the time. And it hadn't been happening before that in a meaningful way. And much of the made of products on the market, as you know, if you look at the label, there's a lot of artificial ingredients, artificial flavors, artificial sweeteners, um, or there's a lot of sugar. And clearly as a society, you know, especially in our younger uh, cohorts, we're kind of People are moving away from that. You know, they want more choices. And so Todd was like, hey, I want something that if I'm a SEAL, I want to drink it. It's going to, you know, it's going to give me energy, but it's also going to make me feel better. He put, in, he put ingredients in the drink specifically to help reduce inflate, in, inflammation in the body. At least there's research that supports that idea um, and to give you natural energy initially without a lot of caffeine either. So that was the concept, something good that I can drink all the time and I'm, I'm not going to have a, like a health problem from drinking. I'm actually going to, I'm actually going to improve my health. And that's what he created. And so when he created it, there's a, there's a great podcast out there somewhere that, that he and this guy GW were on. He didn't have, like, it wasn't a contrived thing. There was no market. <laughs> there was no, like, he didn't think like, I'm going to build this widget and take it to this market that wants this widget. He's just like, I got this drink that I love. Who wants it? And so they, they literally went uh, door to door in Atlanta. Like this is the legit, like I'm selling my product in the back of my, out of the trunk of my car type of thing. And, you know, there were, there were stores that were interested. There were nutrition uh, mom and pops. There were liquor stores. There were bars and restaurants. One thing that Killcliffe, if not well known, it should be, it's a fantastic mixer. This product is a fantastic mixer. People love that. And it's got all the great ingredients in it to help you not have such a bad hangover too. So the, the, the original adopters were some gyms, some, you know, some MMA studios and some bars in Atlanta. And, uh, and it really started catching fire locally. And um, it was just right around that time that CrossFit became out, came out of nowhere as this behemoth. And CrossFit was, you know, one of the top guys in CrossFit from the early days. Co-founder was a Navy SEAL. From, he'd been SEAL Team 6. And so all the guys in the mid part of the 2000s, when I was down there, you know, hanging out with my boys, they were at Team Six and some of the other teams at the time. They were all doing CrossFit; it just wasn't a thing yet. And so they they made it this thing, and um, and so it emanated from this community with this influence. And they immediately, at that period in time, 
they they took they latched on to a few things about they saw the brand. People saw the brand and started spreading like wildfires, like lightning in a bottle for Killcliffe. You know, they they saw the uh, you know the 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 ingredient label being really good for you, ingredients to help with inflammation, um, stuff that makes you feel good after a workout. They like that, and um, and so we were the first beverage in CrossFit. We literally came into CrossFit as CrossFit became a thing and blew up. And for the first few years, we we sponsored the CrossFit Games. We were the, we're the OGs. We were there with them starting the sport, and so uh, so that's part of our history. And um, and so they, but they liked the military aspects of the brand back then. You had a lot of a lot of people, the highly patriotic group of people. They love the military. They have all these military workouts. You know, the honor people who lost their lives um, in combat overseas, and um, and there was just a lot of alignment with the ingredients, the flavor, the the DNA of the brand as a Navy SEAL brand. And that's, that's just what, that's what Killcliffe was. It started in a trunk of a car and it's funny, you know, people are like, Hey, I like this. How do I get more? You call me and I come roll up with my car and I pop open the trunk and I give you a case. So that's literally how it worked. And because of that, and because we grew up in this really, this crossfitting community early on, our business was entirely different from the standard business model for a beverage company. Like we were, we were selling direct to consumer and direct to wholesalers online in 2011. Before anyone else was doing it, we, and, and we and still it's a massive part of our business today. We still have a massive direct to consumer business. We still have all those wholesale accounts. We've kept most of them over the years, and um, and we've grown into new uh, new segments. But but that's we that's how we operate because you know when you're a small beverage brand and you don't know anybody and you're not in the industry and you don't have any investors, how are you going to get distribution? Like it's just not going to happen. So we distribute it ourselves. That's how we started. That's ama- That's that's amazing. I mean, just hearing about Todd selling it kind of door to door and then also your partnership with CrossFit and I guess partly riding that wave of the CrossFit wave. I remember in like, I know CrossFit definitely the, the wave started before and I just remember getting really into CrossFit in like 2013, 2014. There you were, man. In the early days, you probably got a kill clip then too, didn't you? Maybe I might have. Yeah, yeah. I was into that, and I, I was into CrossFit and Spartan races and Tough Mudders and kind of all that type of stuff. Flashing forward, Kill Cliff has the partnership with CrossFit. Really, has become maybe like the brand in that space, and as well as like MMA studios and gyms. Why did you then, in, in 2018, when I guess you were approached again from Todd and like the team of Kill Cliff, why did it make it interesting for you to say, okay, I will come in, and in what capacity do you come in as first? I guess everyone gets to a point in the things they're doing where if they've not found alignment in their life with, you know, their, their values and their job and their pursuits, hopefully they try to reset and create that alignment. And I've been doing tech startups and I was kind of at the end of one that I'd been working on for a few years and we were, it was going to go a different direction. And I, I didn't know if I want to continue going. I'd been putting a lot of effort into it. I was like, I don't know if this is still something I want to do. And I started reach. I actually had started reaching out to the Honor Foundation, where I was serving as a mentor to help guys that were transitioning. And so, long story short, I was at a crossroads where I, I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing anymore. I wanted a new challenge. I wanted to give back to the community because the struggle was really hard for me when I left the Navy. And so, I, I didn't want people to to have to go through the same pain, struggle, sacrifice I went through if I could help them by giving them advice. And um, and I started talking to Todd because I, I wanted to collaborate with Killcliffe to bring some events in with uh, military nonprofits. And Todd, um, at that point, had been pretty far removed from the company. He had been, I think, 2015, 2016, 
the investors had put in um, their own team, which, you know, that happens often when you bring in investment and the founder being Todd took a board seat. Um, and, um, and so, but then, but then the, the company kind of, you know, for, not for, it, it just, it, it got, it went a different direction. It started becoming a little bit less authentic, more contrived, like, you know, stuff that we never did in the past, focus groups, things like that. And it was all for good intention, but it just wasn't right for the company. And so I, when I was working on this stuff, there was just sort of, I was, a, I was making myself available at a time when uh, Killcliffe really needed to get back to its DNA, to its core roots. And the collaboration with Todd to, to put together some veteran events, I had been introduced to the guy, a great guy who's run the business at the time, um, but he came from a totally different background. You know, it wasn't like in his DNA. I, he asked me to do a little uh, consulting project for him. I'd come from, you know, running sales teams. So I gave him my opinion on some of the stuff and processes in the business. And he then proceeded to offer me a job. And I thought, well, you know, I was like, why not? I'm at a crossroads. You know, my, my pastimes are I play guitar. I do mixed martial arts. I've been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu for 16 years. Um, and, and I, I care about by having an active lifestyle and my, my health and fitness. And I also like to be me. I don't like to cover up who I am. So I, there was a lot of alignment there. I was because Todd and I were friends, but we didn't really go deep on the business side. I didn't know that where Killcliffe was as a brand at the time. I didn't know that it had been struggling for a couple of years and that it kind of lost its way and that there were challenges. But what I did know is that irrespective of those challenges, because all businesses face those sorts of challenges in different phases of their growth, that Killcliffe had a mission that they had stuck to and that the investors supported to support the Navy SEAL Foundation. And that was something that was completely aligned with my worldview because I struggled really, really bad when I left the SEAL teams. So I saw that as an opportunity. I was like, well, you know what? This is going, by moving this, taking this career jump from being in the tech world to doing something in CPG, I'm going to accomplish a couple of things. I'm going to align my, my lifestyle, my values with the brand that I'm in. And then I'm going to be able to give back to a community that I was trying to support. So I had no experience. I came from totally outside this enterprise software sales at the, you know, huge multi-million dollar deals that take nine months to develop that type of stuff. That's where I was. And then I, you know, you come into CPG, it's a totally different world. And uh, so I came in originally as my title at the time was chief sales officer, but my actual responsibility was to take all the legacy channels of Killcliffe and make them successful. Why the investors and the, uh, the chief executive at the time focused on the retail playbook. So after about six months or so, maybe seven months, the uh, investors asked me if I would if I would take over as chief operating officer and president and COO, and I did, and I ran the business and from that point forward. They, they I, I, ran, I took leadership of the business and I ran it from 2018 through like late year November timeframe through 2020 as the president and COO. But I was there was no one else; it was me. And then I formally took on the CEO title at the beginning of 2021. So. Um, so yeah, so it's been a it's been a big learning curve, but you know if you're you're passionate and you're focused, it's just like going through SEAL training. There's no reason you can't do it. I actually think industry biases are the worst things in the world because you can learn so much 
from other industries. And especially they get so insular, like, you know, CPG guys do it their way. And their way is not always the right way. It's just the way they know. And, um, and so I came in with a fresh perspective from the outside and did things differently. And it, it really paid off. I mean, I've grown the brand over 150% since taking leadership um, with no background in it at all. You don't have to have the background. You just have to be smart and be agile. And you have to be able to prevent path dependency from happening if the path is the wrong path. You have to identify that and be able to switch quickly. Um, and you have to you have to be smart in the bets you make, but you, you're never going to grow a brand unless you're, you're bold and you're willing to make bets. And you have to be able to make smart bets. So, and then you surround yourself with people smarter than you. That's, you know, that's what you got to do. You, you surround yourself with people from the industry, but maybe you throw a few people in there that aren't from the industry because they'll mix things up and they'll challenge your thinking. So, um, so that's what we've done. We've, we've really built a, a great brand. I mean, the, the thing about the brand is it, it was, it was, it had such a great foundation. It's a testament to the brand and what Todd built that it went through a few really rough years, um, where it was struggling, um, to figure out, you know, how to move the business forward because it, it got kind of stuck in this CrossFit world and it, it, getting out of it was a really hard thing because all the resources went into it. And, um, I just pulled the plug on it. I mean, I love CrossFit, but I said, we're, we're just going to do it differently. It's not that we're not going to do it. We're just going to do it different. And we did, and it worked. Can you give an example of something that the company did that you think, and especially now as you're in a position of CEO, that you thought was maybe inauthentic to the brand? Yeah. So there were, there were a few things, but I think the biggest thing is the leadership at the time did not own the brand. The brand had, had grown up as Killcliffe. That's what this company is. Whether you like it or not, that's the name of this company. It's kind of interesting, this idea of this aggressive name that juxtaposes with something that's actually clean, and you're never going to forget it. So there's a lot of great attributes to the name, especially with a, we're in the CBD world, we're in the energy world, um, we're in the functional world. So it, it lends itself to being bold. It lends itself to the, think about the Navy SEAL DNA. What, what images go through your mind when you think about Navy SEALs? You think about guys jumping out of airplanes, skydiving. You think about big explosions. You think about you think about adrenaline sports, right? You, that's what you think about, and the name lends itself really well to it. But there was a lot of there were at the time there were, when I came in, it, it had been happening for way before me. There was a lot of conversation about diminishing the name, changing the name, distancing from the name, trying to explain the name, and that's just to me was absolutely wrong. But that's that's because the the understanding of the business and the consumer, the understanding of the consumer was not it was not there. I think it was. The idea was like, can we take, you know, as we're trying to get out of, when I say get out, I shouldn't say that, but we're trying to expand. We don't just want to be CrossFit. We love CrossFit, but we want to do more. We want more consumers. Everyone can benefit from our products. So the, the thinking, it wasn't necessarily bad thinking. It was just an idea that didn't work, right? I want to be clear on that because I think the intention's always been, let's grow this thing. Let's make it great. Let's get back to our mission. That's always been there, Mastro's, right? So, but shying away from the name, really, it, it just it, what you end up doing is you separate yourself from the audience that knew you, but then you didn't have a powerful enough brand to take to an audience that didn't know you. That was what the problem that manifested from that that experiment, and the experiment was all about expanding the audience. How do we expand the audience? Um, and there, the school of thought was, well, we need to we need to be less aggressive. We need to be less bold. We need to be. We need to be more ingredient, like in your face driven, like we have this, 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 and this in our products. And that was kind of, that was the focus for better or worse. I mean, 
I, I don't blame any of the folks who, who, who wanted to do that because it was when you have limited resources and you're struggling and you're trying and all your resources are caught up in this one audience and you're trying to get the new audiences, like you, how do you do it efficiently? Well, one of the ideas was let's repackage the products, let's create a functional call out on them and let's diminish the name and let's put a, a you know, let's put a, a tagline in there that's, it's more, you know, um, it's a little bit softer. Let's, um, let's put our mission front and center. And, um, and those are the things that have been done in, in an attempt to, to, to give that brand that next opportunity. But that didn't really take. It didn't take because it wasn't authentic. And then at the same time, it started because those moves were made. We started to lose ground with the, the legacy consumer that loved all the things that we, we were before that move. So, um, so I think, I think that's, you know, that's, that's like one example. And another one related to that is we have a mission. We're very proud of our mission, but the mission was put like front and center top of the can. And that's just not what a Navy SEAL would do. I mean, you're, you're not going to put your trident on the front of the can. Like you just don't do that. We're, I mean, we do have the guys who make a lot of money selling books and there's that, but you got, you have to imagine the community over time has tens of thousands of, of active members and veterans. And you got like, a handful of people that write the books, right? So most of the community is very quiet, quiet operator, quiet professional. And we don't really want to put our war chest right out in front of everybody. So so these sorts of nuances were things that I immediately picked up on and was like, all right, well, we need to take a step back. We need to, we need to, we need to design, first of all, we are our own consumer. So let's build a packaging and a messaging and brand story that that would we would buy. Let's do that and be true to ourselves and just like the you know metal band tool let's be true to ourselves and make investments in that and see where it takes us and so that's what we did and it literally was like what happened to todd like when todd you know started his business he was true to himself he, it was a manifestation of him and his dna and people loved it and it took off so when i came in it was basically like you know i'm todd number two i came in i was like i'm a navy seal i would never buy this we're going to make it look like this we're going to change the the flavor to taste like this we're going to create these call outs, we're going to put this point sale behind it. And then we're going to put it back in the market and see what happens. In the meantime, since we can't be everything to everybody, we're going to focus on the things that we're really, really good at, which is where the brand started, which at that time was selling online. And if we couldn't have picked a better time to do all that because we did all these changes in 2019, we started rolling out in 2020, the pandemic hit and we were locked and loaded, ready to go. And we just were like snapping necks and cashing checks. I got some of the proof back here, you know, this idea of a really authentic artisan can. This is the collaboration with Joe Rogan, which has been incredible. And, you know, you can see the, the, the care, the duty of care into making this a super cool and aggressive can that's also enticing to a consumer. And then, you know, in, in 2020, when we, when we put clean energy drink on our drinks, no one else was doing it. Like there was there was no one calling that there, the subcategory of clean energy. There was no one saying that's what it was. Everyone was talking about functional beverages. And we came out and said, no, we're clean energy. And that's what we did. And it, it really, and it stuck. And then now we hear everyone saying it. So we've, we've seen that happen with our business a few times. So anyway, and you have like the, this is the Navy SEAL commemorative can. We raised over a million bucks for the Navy SEAL Foundation, donated and raised and through, you know, through all sorts of means over the last, I mean, this started with uh, Navy Todd Ehrlich and a Navy SEAL named Chris Irwin, who was at Killcliffe for a long time, influential in development of the brand. He's at the Navy SEAL Foundation now. And, um, you know, we're really proud of our, our contribution. This has been hard to do. And this is where I'm very, very thankful for having investors that, that are behind the mission, because in our rough years, 
it was still allowing us to make good with the foundation, which if you didn't have the right group behind you, that's just not going to happen. Totally, totally. I would love to kind of understand too how you think about launching new SKUs and new flavors. Obviously, you have the collaboration with Joe Rogan. I know you also have collaborations as well with UFC fighters. How do you approach collaborations and kind of partnerships for releasing new SKUs? How does that kind of come to fruition? So there's two ideas there, right? First of all, on a generic level of releasing new SKUs. So because we've established a beachhead online, we found that the innovation cycle can be really, really fast. The traditional process for innovation for a lot of brands is you're going to want to de-risk that innovation, right? You want to have a buyer. So who's your buyer? You're going to collaborate with a big retailer, most likely, or a regional retailer, whoever you have a great relationship with. Like, hey, we're going to, we have this idea for a product. We're going to roll it out. We're going to make you the exclusive partner for so long. And in a way, you're securing commitments for orders so that you're not going to, you're not going to create something and have nowhere to sell it. That's their traditional process for innovation. That process can take a buying cycle or two. It could take nine to 12 months. It could take 18 months. And it's a really, really slow process. We, we've kind of brought on board this idea of agile development and, you know, in creating things really well, really fast, and then testing them online because we built this massive online customer base. So when we launch things, they're not, we don't have any retailer to push them into. We'll, we'll do, we do small runs, limited quantity batches, and we see what happens. And if we get good reviews and people like them, then we test it again. And we bring we keep that little that flavor going for a while. And, you know, if we see it start to tail off and it was just the newness of it that, that drove the sales and it wasn't really something that was going to stick, then we'll take it off the market. But in doing that, we completely de-risk the whole proposition for launching new SKUs and innovation. We are able to push out ideas and concepts in the market um, and we're able to sell them into our, our direct-to-consumer and our direct-to-wholesale uh, you know, powerhouse uh, group of customers, and we see what they say. It doesn't cost us much money to do it. Every single every single launch we've had, we've had I think five or six launches that we've tested in the last eighteen months, or maybe maybe twenty months, twenty four months. Every single one of them, we 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 sold out of the first run within ninety days with positive ROI. Wow, that's awesome. That's great. How also do you approach? you know, partnerships, maybe in general or, or kind of unique distribution channels. I know you're the official um, energy drink of the Atlanta Braves, for example, which is super exciting. But how do you kind of open it up to maybe I want to say more mainstream sports per se and getting the hands on Kill Cliff? I think about it in a couple ways. You know, the, the thing that in the brands are, you know, the, the brands are working on is, is, is obviously, you know, getting that traction with the consumer and getting and finding their audience and, and getting in the right place with the right messaging, all that stuff, right? So there's different ways to approach that. The traditional way is what I observe is that you know a lot of a lot of brands just really focus on on building their brand on a singular block of like one or two retailers, a regional retailer. It's very very focused on like that's how yeah like that and that's not that's not that's not the wrong way to do it and, and we do that to some extent too but you know in, in a hyper competitive industry like energy drinks for example how do you get brand awareness out there it's you just can't spend enough money to build it retailer by retailer so my point of view is it's way more efficient to find the things that are going to give you halo effects the top down so it's great to have a retailer that you know, that it's very top down their approach. So you can implement a program with, and it gets executed everywhere seamlessly. That's a great thing. So very similar when you're trying to build your brand and in a market, 
um, having something that gives you a halo effect so you, you're building consumer awareness. It's, it can, if, it, if the economics are right, it can be way more efficient to spend on that money, on that asset, even though the ROAS is not directly identifiable or, or trackable. The attribution just might not be a clear line. But you're, you're way better off doing that than trying to, to build, like, if you're trying to build with, like, 10 retailers, I mean, you're going to have to spend a ton of money trying to get the brand to stick. So our approach was, like, let's build online where we can chat, we can really focus our messaging to our consumer and understand how they respond to it. And then let's get a couple of assets that really turbocharge the brand and give broad brand awareness. And once we have those things working in concert, then let's let's start to build the brand in a more traditional way with retailers. And so that was the approach we took. And we did it because we just, you just can't, you don't have enough money to be everything to everyone. And, and when I looked at the things the business had done before I got there, it was more of the traditional, like we're going to build it retailer by retailer approach. And the brand wasn't ready. And as a result, it failed. And it became very, very expensive for the company because then you're throwing money at trying to move and drive velocities you're, you're buying these big programs trying to get the consumer because you don't know who your consumer is and you're still you're still out there fishing. So if, if that's where you are, then I would just offer that there might be a better approach, which which would be audience targeting online and then finding the, the halo effects with assets that can help uh, build and embolden that audience so that when you go to a retailer, you know exactly to who you're selling and, and how you can capture them. And then you have alignment in that retailer with that customer base. So, um, so that's generally speaking how I think about and why we've done some of the things we've done in terms of partnerships. So Joe Rogan's a perfect example. Uh, you know, Joe Rogan, he's been a consumer of Kill Club for years. And we had, had a discussion with him a few years ago and just, you know, there was a lot of alignment between um, his, his lifestyle, his, his, his priorities and health and fitness, his mindset um, and our brand. And he's done, you know, done a lot to support Navy SEALs and other, other military uh, veteran um, organizations, companies, things like that. So, um, so you know, we, we, it was kind of a we, – we both wanted to do it. And so he got involved in our brand in a very meaningful way, and that gave us a large – a ton of brand awareness, and it created these viral effects online. Um, and, but I, what I'll say is that not everybody is a Joe Rogan. I don't think it's very smart to just hitch to a celebrity – there has to be a level like what sells is authenticity and that's whether you like Joe or not, you can't claim he's not authentic. He's, he is who he is. And, and that's our brand too. It's the same thing. It's, we are who we are. You either like us or you don't. Um, we're going to give you a healthy product that tastes great and you're either on the Kill Cliff train or you're not. And we're okay with that. So we're not trying to pander and be everything to everybody. And I think that's a, a trap that a lot of CPG brands run into is they really try they, they don't know who their audience is and they try to just pander to everybody. And we don't, we we know who we are. So the key with like the effect with Rogan, for example, is there has to be the alignment with the brand that's authentic and the person that you're working with or the partners you're working with, they have to have engagement. That's real. So much engagement out there right now is, is purchased. It's not real. It's bought. It's, you know, it's bots, it's whatever. So you got to find people that actually have real engagement, real, real influence, real, effect and then the alignment between your brand and their worldview in terms of, you know, their priorities and what they, what they represent as a consumer and what they want to put in their bodies. And if you can get those things together, then you have a really powerful alliance. Um, and that can give you a halo effect 
that helps you grow your business. And some of the, you know, growing your business in retail is awesome. It's also really, really hard. We're at a stage now where it's a, it's a huge priority for us because we've gotten to the point where we've done enough brand development work to where it's more efficient now for us to spend because it's easier to tell people who we are. There's more people who know who we are. And we have this force multiplier effect of the investments we made and um, and some big assets that really resonate with our audiences. Um, so that's you know just conceptually how I think about brand building and what we're doing. And it, it, there is a balancing act because you, like I said, you don't have money for everything. You can't be everything to everybody. You have to make every dollar count. So that's why it's really important to find alignment, authenticity, and engagement um, in those partnerships. And then, then just you know you have to be creative. The creative find we find win wins. You know, we don't go into partnerships just looking at like what can you do for us. You know, we try to make it a a win win scenario where everybody has all boats rise. Everybody, um, everybody has, uh, you know, a great opportunity to enjoy the success of the partnership. And so we're, we're, we're very collaborative. We're also hyper creative as an organization. So I think those are two of our strong suits outside of just having the best tasting products on earth. Yeah. And I appreciate you, you sharing and, and kind of shedding some light, how you think about distribution and as well as uh, different channels that you actually can't measure or it's really hard for, for attribution. Well, there's, there's a huge marketing debate. And look, I'm not classically trained in anything, so you can take it for what it is. Um, you can go tell me to pound sand if you want. But in my, uh, my research, there's a massive debate on you know, what's more valuable in marketing spend, marketing that's going to work, or marketing in the organic. Um, and you'll find very, very compelling arguments for both. You know, there's a lot more interest in organic nowadays than I've ever seen before. And, and that's because just looking at, at the way society is evolving, the virtualization you know, obviously social media and the importance. And it's not, it's not just the importance of social media as a, as a marketing funnel per se with paid media and the traditional means it's look, I mean, one of the great things about our partnership with Rogan is it's, he loves it. It's his lifestyle. It's his pro He created that. Like, you know, it's, it's not something he, he's, he's doing for a paycheck. So, you know, when you look at like influencers and the, the power of influencers to, to help you grow your brand there, you know, what, what, what I find is that, you know, the big celebrities, unless you get the right one, can be a, just a massive, colossal waste of time, right? So you, that's why you have to find the people that meet those criteria I mentioned earlier. My final question to you, John, is what's, I guess, one piece of advice that you have for anyone founding today? Yes, I, that's a great question. I think, I think there's a few things that are, that are there. I think you need, to, you need to be all in for the work. Right. It's okay to side hustle um, until you're ready to be all in and just test the waters. That's a great way of doing things. You know, if you're if you're founding something and you want to see if it sticks, you know, do it in your spare time, see what happens. You know, it's a way that you don't give up your day job. You have a way to kind of figure out what's what. So that's the that's the first piece of advice. Second piece of advice when you do when you do want to get something going, you have to be all in because you're gonna hire people. If you're not all in, they're not all in. They're going to see right through you. Um, and it's really, really hard. Whether you take an approach like we took or you take a more traditional approach, very valid both ways, you know, it's going to take a lot of time and effort that you need to be fully committed to. And you're going to have a lot of setbacks. You have to be resilient. Um, so just the mindset going into it is it's there's no easy day. That's to take a, a phrase from the SEAL teams. The only easy day was yesterday. There's no easy day. Um, it's going to be hard. It's going to feel like you're, you're pushing a rope uphill. Um, but 
What I would say is when you start making progress, there's a few things that you really need to, you really need to take to heart. Um, one of them is you can't, even though you'll, you'll want to, you shouldn't move too fast. Perfect your craft, perfect your audience, understand who you are and stay true to who you are because you're going to be challenged. You're going to have the, you're going to have the, the customer or distributor that says, you know what? I love everything about this, but if you just put this on the package or you just call it this, then I'll bring it in. So what's the price for selling your soul, right? I mean, it may be that the upgrade makes sense and that's a good idea, but you shouldn't do something that's contrary to what you believe or else it's going to fail. Even though it might be in the near term, a solution that's successful, that makes you feel better, maybe gives you the revenue you need, um, but if you start making compromises to what you are and who you are as a brand, then you're going to lose both. You're going to lose who you are and you're going to lose your brand. So that gets to my last point real quick, which is when you're ready and it, all brands at some point are going to need, there are some that can just, they can tool out a lifestyle business work for 20 years and, and grow. But if you're serious about growing and building, then you have got to get, the right group of investors that are aligned with who it is that you are, your brand is, have the same vision. They don't want to change your name. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to just like re-engineer what you have and put it somewhere else. Like there's, there's got to be, and there are concessions. There are some concessions when you're in that process, but you got to make sure that tr directionally there's alignment on who, who you are and who they are and that you want to go the same place and you want to go the same way. And you know what that's going to take. And so you don't want to move too fast. You want to make sure you're well-grounded in who you are, that it's clear who you are, that you have a consumer, you've identified who that consumer is. And then when you're the place to bring in capital, there's a lot of alignment between that. I, I you know, I, I once, uh, I once talked to, to Evan Hafer, the CEO of Black Rifle Coffee, and he told me something. And, and he, he said that when he was, there was a point where, where they were ready to expand and they, they were bringing in, you know, some private money and he i think he at that point they've been very very successful they he waited a long time so the longer you can wait the better i mean i think they got up to 50 70 million dollars before they brought in any capital i mean they got a long way down the road and what he told me i found really intriguing because i i come into a business that you know there was a lot of good intention but some of the things that happened probably weren't the best for the brand but you know that's okay because the good news is the group that I have, we're collaborative in, in making it right. So we made it right. So, but what I will say is that, um, is that Evan told me he interviewed, I don't know the number. It sounded like it was over 50 private equity groups. He went and interviewed and he showed up exactly who he was. He's wearing his blue jeans and his flannel shirt, probably a ball cap, bearded up, just being Evan. And he walked into all these private equity groups and He's just, this is, you know, he was interviewing them. Like, this is who I am. And this is who we are at his company, Black Rifle Coffee. And if you want some of this, then you need to be aligned with us. So he went in with that viewpoint. And, and I think that that worked out really well for him and his company and getting the resources and support they needed in terms of building the brand that he envisioned and that they envisioned. There's a group of those guys and, and they did a really good job. So, um, so that's my advice, um, is, is, you know, and you, you have to be, you have to be clear in who you are. You have to be clear in what your objectives are and you have to find alignment.
You have to be clear on who your brand is and you have to stick to it. Because the second you start selling out, it's just a slippery slope to the bottom. Those are, I mean, great, great suggestions. John, thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun chatting. Absolutely, man. Look, I, I appreciate it anytime. And, uh, you know, make sure to keep your fridge stocked full of some ice cold Kill Cliff. We got the full gamut. So, you know, just we got a little something for all your proclivities. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you, John. I, I really appreciate that. Thanks. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with John. I hope you all enjoyed hearing his story and the story of the Kill Cliff. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.